It's to Philippians in chapter 4, just one sentence you'll find in verse 20. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 20. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray that you would grant to us um, ears to your eyes to see, Father, what we're after today is to see your glory and to glorify you. Uh, That is the whole purpose of everything. So enable us, Father, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 20. The apostle writes, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I want to begin, I want to ask three questions today. It's three questions I always ask, really. I don't always tell you these are the three questions I'm asking, but I'm just going to be honest today. Three questions. First one, simply of this sentence, what does it mean? Secondly, how does it fit? I mean, why does Paul say this now? I mean, is the end he adds this sentence. He's an intentional guy. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is breathing out this word from him. So why does he say this here, this, this sentence to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does he say it now? And then thirdly, how does this sentence fit in our own lives? Is there ever an occasion where this would be the one sentence that you must say that would just fit? You go, yes, that's it right there. To our God and Father, Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those three questions first. What does it mean? When we hear Paul saying to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever, amen, we realize that he's ascribing, in some sense, glory to God. He's saying glory belongs to God. Glory be to our God and Father. Forever and ever. When he says forever and ever, of course, he means all the time. So it isn't just a fleeting thing. It's something that's true of God, this glory that he's ascribing to him all the time. And you get the sense that Paul is saying, I should be ascribing glory to God all the time as well because it belongs to him. Now, as Presbyterian types, we deal with this word glory a lot. Our catechism was the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we talk about this word glory a lot. But in the Old Testament... This word glory simply meant weight, not like, I'll be there in a minute, but like, well, you ate a lot. Look how much <laughs> you weigh. Uh, weight, that kind of weight. Weight, weight, big. And so figuratively, it came to be known as that which referred to that which was most impressive about something or someone. You see, when we think about this big word weight, it means its size overwhelms you. And you look at it and you go, glory. Karen and I were just in, uh, and the kids were just in Colorado and we walked the mountains and sometimes we'd stop and really, if you wanted to be religious about this, you'd simply say, glory. Look at that. That's huge and beautiful. It was impressive. In fact, I use this word easily. Uh, Christmas evening, I look at, get on the scale, I look down and I go, glory. Uh, I'm impressed. <laughs> Praise to the cook, eight pounds in one day. How did that happen? That which, therefore, reflects uh, most clearly that thing or that person. 
That's when you stand before a mirror and you look in it. That's your glory. It reflects you. It shows who you are. So when we uh, think of, for instance, an athlete, the glory of an athlete might be that athlete's competitiveness. Uh, the glory of a student might be that student's intelligence. The glory of, of, of a business person might be his or her patent that might be had in that particular business. That's their glory. That's the most impressive thing. That's the thing that's most weighty about them and most reflects them. When you think of them, you think of that. We think of God... Everything about him is glorious. Everything about him is praiseworthy. Because he's, he's God. In fact, God put it best, I think, himself, but one time when he says, who compares to me? And you have to stop and say, nobody that I know. You're out there. You're God. And we see, we see the glory of God because the glory of God is, is the manifestation of his deity. The psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And they do. We look into the heavens. And when you think about a being who can simply say, star, sun, moon, earth, people. When you see the heavens and realize with a word it was made, it's his glory, his greatness, the majesty, the splendor of God. You realize his name proclaims his glory. You remember when, when, when Moses was being called by God to go back to Egypt and to pull the people out of Egypt. He said to God, who shall I say has sent me? What name shall I give them? Uh, because Moses knew that names meant something, that there was character behind that. It, it expressed something. It was the glory of a person could be expressed right in their name, that which was most impressive, most weighty about them. And, and Moses knew that if he went into Egypt and the people said, uh, who's going to lead us out? And Moses would simply say, well, Moses, they'd go, that's not going to work. Give me somebody more powerful than Pharaoh. Give me somebody who can, who can break the bondage of this 400 years worth of slavery. Give me somebody who can lead us out of this place where we're stuck and we're enslaved and we can't get out. And so Moses asked God, who shall I say has sent me? Give me your name. And God simply says, I am. Which is simply the verb to be. He says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be, meaning I am self-existent. I am self-sufficient. I am self-determining. I simply am. There, hasn't, there wasn't a time when I wasn't. There won't be a time when I won't be. I am. Nobody determines me. Nobody constrains me. I do whatever pleases me, and I am able because I simply am. I'm self-sufficient, I don't need anyone. I'm self-existent, nobody created me. I simply am and always have been. I am. I'm the sovereign one. I'm the eternal one. I am. No one can stop me because I will be whoever I desire to be. I will do whatever I desire to do. No one will, no one can stop me. I am. Tell them that. That should impress them. That is praiseworthy for someone simply to say, I am. We can't say that about ourselves. We can say we are because someone else is. There was a time when we weren't, so we simply can't say, I am. We can simply say, I am now. I are here doesn't really work well. 
but I'm here, but not I am. Now, you remember, too, then later, if you take a look, you don't need to. I'll read it to you. Exodus chapter 33. Moses was trying, I think, to gain confidence uh, for his own going back uh, to Egypt uh, and continuing on. I'm sorry, he had been to Egypt and continuing on and pulling the people and moving them on and so forth. And God had said that he wasn't going to go back with them or with them, and then he said he was. And so Moses comes to God and says this, please show me your glory. In a sense, if we could look at it this way, Moses is saying, God, impress me. Show me your weightiness. Grant to me the confidence therein that I can go with you and thus even with these people. Please show me your glory. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. I am. I'll proclaim that in a way that will reveal me. It'll be my deity and manifestation. I will show you who I am by proclaiming to you my name, which is the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then down in chapter 34 and verse 6, the scripture says, the Lord passed before him, that is before Moses, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, you remember this scene, I suspect, that God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he says, now you have to cover your face, turn away, because no one can see me full bore. Nobody can see me, uh, see my front, but I'll pass by you and you can see my backside, whatever that means. And you'll still see my glory. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, which is his name. And then he goes and gives definition. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping uh, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He says, that's who I am. I'm merciful and yet I'm just. I'm gracious and yet I'm righteous. I'm loving and kind, and yet I can't acquit the guilty. That's who I am. And then, of course, we see the glory of God most specifically in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 that the gospel really is the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father because I'm the perfect reflection of him. The author of Hebrews says he's the perfect representation of God. The Apostle Paul in another, another section in Colossians says that Jesus is the exact image of God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. And so when you see Jesus, you, you see the Father, you see God his glory. And thus as you walk through the pages of the Gospels, you, you see the very glory of God. John introduces this one who has come and he says, we have seen his glory because he's come and made his tent among us. He's come and, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, his glory, you see. When Jesus walks around, we see the very grace of God and the very truth of God, the very manifestation of God. And of course, we see the glory of God in the cross of Christ. We see the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, as he pours out upon sin that which sin rightly deserves, his wrath and condemnation. We see all of that being poured out on Jesus on the cross. So we see the very holiness of God, but we also see the love of God as well. 
Oh, yes, he cannot acquit the guilty, so he punishes the guilty ones in Christ. We see it, the very glory of God. But we also see the love and the mercy and the kindness of God in the cross as well because it's there that he pardons us for he's already condemned sin in Jesus. And thus he pardons all those who trust in Christ. So on the cross we see the very glory of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about the cross saying it's the very wisdom and power of God. We see the wisdom of God in the cross. We see the power of God in the cross. We see the power of God in the cross to break the bondage of sin that exists over sinners so they can be freed to believe and freed then to follow Christ in their forgiveness and redemption. And we see the very wisdom of God. For who else can solve this great dilemma of love and justice? Who else can solve this great dilemma of saving sinners? Because to punish a sinner as to what he or she deserves is to punish them forever. How can they ever be saved? So he takes this very one who is worth us all and he places upon him the punishment for our sin. And so he is honest and just and with integrity punishes. And then he loves and frees those he trusts. It's amazing. Who would have thought of that? the wisdom and power of God. And so we see the glory of God being manifested in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm only taking off my watch to know how long over I'm going to go. Now, so relax. The lights may come on before I'm done. Um, now, we see that glory. And so Paul is saying, to you be glory forever and ever because your glory is praiseworthy. I see it. I see the very glory of God. And what he's doing here in ascribing this glory to God is he's praising him. He's praising him. He's saying, you are glorious. All the glory belongs to you. Now, if I could use a very, very crude, and I mean crude in the sense that it just isn't even close to comparing. I don't like people when they use sports illustrations and talk about God because he's not the quarterback, and he's not the coach, and he's not all that stuff. But think about this. You go to a Chicago Bulls basketball game 10 years ago, and you see Michael Jordan play, and you see him in all his glory. He's glorious, and he's praiseworthy. So what do you do? You go. The response to gloriousness is to give glory. The response to that which is praiseworthy is to praise. And so see, Paul at this moment in time is seeing, is getting, flooded in on him, the greatness of God, the glory of God. And so all that then he can say is to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He praises God because God is praiseworthy. He praises God because God is glorious. And of course, as we read through the scripture, especially the Psalms, we read great praises concerning God. You can't read the Psalms very long without reading, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise the Lord in the mountains. Praise the Lord in the fields. All over the place. Praise the Lord. In fact, in fact everything's called to praise the Lord. Psalm 103, the angels are called to praise the Lord. The mountains are called to praise the Lord. Everything's called 
to praise the Lord and to say, glory be to you forever and ever. Amen. Everything's called to praise the Lord. In fact, the Lord even calls us to praise him. In fact, the Lord even calls us, commands us to praise him. Because he is glorious. Now, in the mid-18th century, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, old dead guy, great old dead guy, uh, wrote a book with a title that was given it, The End to Which God Created the World. Rather ambitious title. But quite frankly, it has a very, very, very simple answer. He spent 150 pages, but if you've ever read Edwards, you know there's only three sentences in those 150 pages. Uh, he's the king of commas. Um, but the answer is very simple, and often the answer to very profound questions, at least on the face of it, can be very simple. I remember one time I was reading a book uh, entitled, uh, Can Men Be Good Without God? It was about a 250-page book. I think Clay Belcher was using it for a Sunday school class, and I was sitting in our family room, and I'm reading this book, and one of my kids, who was fairly young at the time, walked by, looked at the title, and simply said, No. <laughs> and I thought, why am I reading 250 pages then? If it's so obvious that it's just, no. It's sort of like the study I read recently. Uh, Grant was given to somebody to study why prisoners break out of prison. Because it's prison, and they're prisoners. Wouldn't you love to get that grant, like summer at the beach? Um, you could write that in an afternoon and get on with it. Now, um, everybody said they didn't want to be here. Oh. Now, the end to which God created the world, if we can put that in a question, which would be, what was, what is the end to which God has created the world? The answer is this. For his glory. That's the answer. For his glory. For his glory to be displayed. For his glory to be praised. You see, God's chief end is to glorify himself. Everything that God does is to display his glory. We were created in his image to reflect him. He created us to reflect his image. We reflect, he, he created us to glorify him, to show his greatness. The scripture says that when he pulled Israel out of Egypt, he did it for his namesake, that is, for his own glory, to show his name to be great. When he took Pharaoh through all of the plagues through which he took Pharaoh and so forth, and the Egyptians, he did it so that he would be glorified, so that he would be shown to be the Lord and not the Pharaoh. In fact, our own salvation is for God to be glorified because his name was scandalized in the Garden of Eden. And thus Christ came to honor the very name of his Father. He came and he said, I've come not to glorify myself, but to glorify my Father. Right before he went to the cross, he says, Father, now the, the time has come. Glorify your Son that I might glorify you. And so our very salvation is for his glory. Uh, the apostle writes in, a, in just an amazing passage in Ephesians in chapter 1. We considered it uh, a great deal last year in our, our uh, uh, Wednesday night suppers. 
Ephesians in chapter uh, 1, he says this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for their adoption uh, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. I read that too fast, didn't I? It kind of sneaks up on you. But you get all this great stuff about our salvation, about how God has chosen us to be his. He's predestined us to be adopted into his family. He's done all that in love. He's redeemed us and forgiven us. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. And you realize that's exactly the way it should be. Who else's glory should God live for? Who else should God live to reflect? What being is there in all of the universe who is so great that his being should be reflected in everything but God alone? In fact, and I'm not going to dwell on this. You can play with this if you want to. It would be sin for God not to glorify himself because it's sin for us. Glory, I mean sin, is falling short of God's glory. When we fail to reflect him, that's sin. When God would, if God would fail to reflect himself, it would be sin. In fact, it would be idolatry. He would be honoring someone other than God, which is idolatry. In fact, it's our comfort that God lives to glorify himself. A psalm I read probably <clears throat> at least a half a dozen times a month in my insecurity is Psalm 46. Psalm 46 begins by God saying that the earth is shaking beneath your feet and the mountains are falling into the sea. That is not a very pleasant picture. And at the very end of the psalm, verse 10, he tells us to relax. He says, be still and know that I am God. And that's wonderful, but it's not the end of the verse. That's usually all we memorize. He says, be still and know that I am God. The next line is, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Meaning, don't worry. This is still all going to reflect me. Don't worry. I'm going to eventually be honored. Don't worry. I'm in the business of glorifying myself. I've got everything under control. A day will come when you'll see when even the ground that is shaken and even the mountains that have fallen into the sea will show that I am merciful and compassionate and loving and forgiving and just. Just rest in that. So the apostle, you see, comes to really know that. And at this moment in time, as he writes to the church in Philippi, he says, now I need to breathe and I need to simply say, praise you. Now interestingly, of all the people that would have trouble with this notion of praising God, it's our little friend C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a book, a lot of them, but one of them called Reflection on the Psalms. Uh, this is chapter 9. You can pick this up at the local bo bookstore. There's still one copy left. I got the other because somebody here has mine. But anyway, <laughs> chapter 9. I can't remember who that is, but if it's you, I love you. Keep it now. I have one. Uh, it's a blessing. But in chapter 9 is entitled A Word About Praising. And it's a great chapter on praising, except for the next to the last paragraph, which could... I'd like to rewrite for him, but he's dead and has a copyright. Uh, but he says this. When I first began to draw near to belief in God 
and for some time after it had been given, me, given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God, and still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. So I, that didn't, I didn't like that, and here's why. He says, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. He said, listen, I didn't like this idea that there was this God out there who needed to be told how great he was. In fact, he goes on to say, it was hideously like saying, like God saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. Well, the truth of the matter is, God does command us to tell him that he's good and great. But you see Lewis's problem. We don't like people like that. We don't like people who need to be praised all the time. In fact, Lewis went on to use this image. It's not an image I would use, so, so don't be angry at me. But he said it sort of reminded him as a, of a vain woman wanting compliments. The women's movement was not alive in 1958, and so he could get away with a line like that. Um, but he said that's what it reminded him, about a, like a vain woman wanting compliments. And he said it was really absurd, especially this. He said even if such an absurd deity could be conceived, he would hardly come to us the lowest of rational creatures, comparing us, I think, to angels, to gratify his appetite. He said, I don't want my dog to bark approval of my books. And now that I come to think of it, there are some humans whose enthusiastically favorable criticism would not much gratify me. Then it goes on. It says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Unless, sometimes even if, Shyness or the fear of it, boring others, is deliberately brought in to check it. He says, listen, we naturally praise that which we enjoy. He says, the world rings with praise. Readers praise their favorite poet walkers, praise the countryside players, praise their favorite, favorite game. There's praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, Flowers, mountains, rare stamp, rare beetles, I don't know. Um, even sometimes politicians or scholars. He says, we praise that which we value. It's a natural thing. You go to a game, you end up cheering whether you want to or not. When you see great plays, you say, wow, look at that. And it's interesting that when we begin to praise, we turn to others and say, did you see that? You, you need to join me in this. He goes on, he says, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't it lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing, about everything else we value. You know that. People come to you all the time to praise things which they value. And it can be quite boring because if you don't value them the way they do, you sort of have to just endure it. There's nothing worse than meeting somebody who just met the person they're going to marry. You're thinking, I'm glad you're happy, but... 
we know that. But you see, he says, that's what we do. So it's just natural. If God is praised, we'll be praised. Him. In fact, he goes on, this will be my last little line. He says, I think we delight uh, to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. That is when you see it and you get it and you value it and it begins to overflow in you. You can't help but say it. You can't help but praise it. You can't help but say glory be to you. And if you don't get a chance to do that, the whole experience is muted. The whole experience is truncated. It's not complete. The delight isn't full. And so God reveals to us, you see, his praiseworthiness. He reveals to us his glory. And then you see the response that completes that, the only response that makes us full, the end to which we were created is to worship and to praise him and to say to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. You see, Paul is in a situation here where he's in prison. And he's amazed as he's in prison that those he is in prison at probably the, one of the weakest points in his life that the gospel is advancing more rapidly than he could ever imagine. And he just looks back and he says, what I really value the most in life is that the gospel advances. And look, even while I'm in prison, the gospel is advancing. Who could be responsible for that? Who could do that kind of thing? Only God to God. Be glory forever and ever. And he looks and he realizes that he's in prison. And everybody else in prison is miserable, but he's at peace. Everybody else in prison is discontented and jealous of those who aren't and complaining about being in prison, but Paul isn't. In fact, he looks around and he realizes that while everybody else is in need, he is well supplied. And he thinks, now that's amazing. Who's responsible for that? Oh, to God be glory. Not only that, but he looks at this people, this people in Philippi to whom he's writing, and he realizes that though they're suffering, they're still walking with Christ. Though they're suffering, they're still, and they're suffering poverty, as we read last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and all kinds of difficulty, they're still being generous. And the gospel is still advance, advancing through them. And he has the great honor with confidence to say to them, my God will supply every need of yours through his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And he's saying, thank you, God. I love these people. I want to help them, but I can't. But I know because of who you are, you will. And he worships. Now, I've shared with you before my sort of quick way of entering into worship when I don't feel it. I begin to compare. I begin to compare what I have with what I need. And that works a while because, quite frankly, with almost any area I can think of, I can make it look as if I have more than I need or at least as much as I need. But, you know, needs kind of grow over time. And that which wasn't a need yesterday all of a sudden is a need, mostly because, well, you got one. All right? And it becomes a need all of a sudden. And then, so then I compare, you know, what I need, what I have with what I want, and 
well, that gets okay for a while, but, but you know, wants to sort of grow as well. But then I reflect back and I compare what I have with what I deserve to have. And I look at the cross and I realize that I deserve the wrath of God, but I've been given his grace and kindness. I deserve hell, yet I have the anticipation of heaven. I deserve to be cut off from him, and yet he's, through Christ, joined me to himself. And I begin to realize all that I have comes from a gracious hand, for I deserve none of it. And I say to my God and Father, be glory forever and ever. So that's why we come together on Sundays. We come together on Sundays because, you know, throughout the whole course of the week, what happens is that, is that things shout out to us. Our cars and our houses and our friends and our kids and our spouses and our, our jobs and our bank accounts and, and our pleasures and all these things shout out to us, I'm glorious, I'm glorious, I'm glorious. I want you to turn and say to me, glory be to you, glory be to you, glory be to you. And we can get caught up in that. We begin to, to rest our delight in all of these things. And yet we weren't made for that. That can't satisfy. So we come back on Sundays and what do we do? We begin to think about God and his holiness. And we begin to think, therefore, in comparison, our sin and our need for him. And then we begin to think upon Christ. And we begin to think about what we deserve, but yet what he gives to us. And all of a sudden, we realize that all that seems to be glorious isn't gold. Only God is glorious. And then you see, we enter into, if God is at work and our hearts are right, and all this is happening, we end up into the greatest delight a human soul can know. And that is to really say to our God and Father, be glory together. Now there's one aspect. See if I, I don't have time for this, so I'll do it anyway. There's one aspect here that we mustn't miss that enables Paul to praise at this point. And I say this because this can often be overlooked. Because it's very easy, you see, to look at what I deserve and, and, and what I have and give praise. But there's another aspect of this because, you see, if we're really praying this prayer from Philippians chapter 1 that says that our love is to abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that we may be able to approve that which is excellent. You see, Paul's living that out. And Paul's love has abounded so much so that he loves this church. He loves these people in Philippi. Even in their poverty and in their difficulty, he loves them. And he can think of nothing other than the fact that before God, they are his joy and his crown. And he wants nothing more than their well-being. And then he begins to think, who can supply their well-being? Who can really be what they need? Who can supply every need of theirs? These people I love. I can't. I'm in prison. I can't. I'm just a human being. I can't because, because I don't have the wherewithal to do that. But God can. And thus he commends them to God. And it brings him great 
joy. The reason I say that is that the degree to which we do not get involved in the lives of each other and the degree to which we do not love each other and the degree to which our joy is not tied up in the well-being of each other is the degree to which we won't be able to praise like Paul does here. Because you see, when I really come to love you and I really come to, to desire that all your needs need, be met, and then I look at myself and I think, they're in trouble. If they're looking to me, they're in trouble. But I love them. I want their needs to be met. I want people to be healed. I, I want people to have jobs. I want people to have stuff. I want people to have relationships. I want people to have good marriages. I want all these things. Because I know my own inadequacy. And the more I love you, the more my heart breaks. The more you love, we love each other, the more our heart breaks. What a wonderful thing it is to then know God and say, ah, oh, for this one I love, God will supply every need of theirs. I don't think there's any greater consolation to a parent than that. I don't think there's any greater consolation to a husband or a wife I don't know that there's any greater consolation to a friend than that. I cannot know any greater consolation for one who really loves another than to know that though I be inadequate, God isn't. And so Paul, after saying, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, then simply has to say to our God and Father, be glory. Now, what I want you to do this week is I want you to take that sentence and however you have to do this, write it down. If you're going to get a tattoo this week, get that. <laughs> write it down. Memorize. It's not hard. A few words. Get a reminder. I don't care what it is. So that periodically through the day, think, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, Amen. And then ask yourself, does that fit? Does that fit in my life? And if it doesn't, why? For it doesn't, you're missing the very thing for which you were created. And if it does, enjoy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, simply this, to be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand for the benediction as you do. I remind you of our time on uh, Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock. You know the drill, but be here, 6 o'clock Wednesday. Elders are available to pray after the service in the office area. Please take advantage of that uh, as well. The response to the benediction is uh, glory to God forever and ever. Amen. All right? Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, glory to God forever and ever. Amen.